0: Halifax on Canada's east coast was settled as a security buffer against the French in the north over 200 years ago. And today it is the site of the 11th annual Halifax International Security Summit. Hello, it's Sunday, November 24th, I'm Mercedes Stevenson and this is the West Block. Top military, political and security leaders from around the world have gathered here in Halifax to talk about the challenges facing NATO, a resurgent Russia, and the effect that political upheaval around the globe is having on our collective peace and security. But there's a common theme coming up throughout these discussions, the role of China and how the central government there has been responding to the protests in Hong Kong, human rights violations, and China's push at the global economic table. U.S. Senator Jim Risch is the chairman of the powerful Senate Foreign Relations Committee and an insider at the Oval Office. I sat down with the senator late last week. Here's that conversation. Senator Risch, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you.
0: You recently signed off on legislation that would suspend non-lethal crowd control measures going to China. Some of the things that we've seen being used in the streets of Hong Kong. The Chinese government is now threatening to retaliate if President Trump signs that legislation. Are you concerned about what China might do?
1: Well, we're always concerned about what China might do. But uh, look, the purpose of this was uh, to get them to rethink their position and there's two ways of handling it. They can uh, get angry and stomp their foot and uh, retaliate, or they can step back, uh, catch a deep breath, and say, I wonder what the rest of the international community thinks about this. And they will find that they're pretty much by themselves uh, on this.
0: Are you willing to consider economic sanctions? Because that's one of the things that people are saying this bill would pave the way for, the possibility of diplomatic or economic sanctions.
1: Yeah, look, uh, when America, Canada, uh, the world generally, is about human rights and about freedom and about democracy. Not everybody. Uh, the minority uh, have, have different ideas. Uh, but uh, if you're going to uh, fight for those things today, you don't use the battlefield anymore. I mean, uh, economic sanctions are uh, non-kinetic ways of communicating to someone that they need to reevaluate the, uh, the conduct that they're, uh, they're, they're involved in.
0: Do you have a sense that there's a red line for the United States, that if the Hong Kong government crosses a certain point, or if the Chinese government in the mainland crosses a certain point, there would be greater action than we've seen so far? Because there's been a lot of condemnation, but not a lot of consequences.
1: Um, I'm always afraid to, uh, or reluctant to, I guess would be a better word, uh, talk in terms of red lines uh... the chinese know uh... what kind of conduct uh... generates what kind of response uh... from the world community and uh, they they know where they are on that
0: canada is still deciding whether or not to allow huawei to participate in the five g network here how do you think uh... A yes and a decision to move forward and allow huawei to participate would affect our security relationship with the united states
1: i would uh... Really urge the government officials that are making that decision to go into a skiff uh, with uh, with people who uh, from the intelligence community here in Canada, and they will hear some things that uh, uh, will uh, widen their eyes as far as the dangers of uh, getting involved with Huawei. I'm on the intelligence committee; we deal with this every day. Huawei's been an issue for us for a long time and uh, we've urged all our partners all our allies all the free world uh to assess whether they really want to be hooking up to uh uh, to huawei products huawei is a is a chinese company and uh, we all know that uh, china is an authoritarian government it is uh, uh, really the communist party and the communist party has access to every bit and bite of information in the country uh, and uh, all things that uh, that are on uh, uh, on people's private uh, phones and everything else.
0: Turning to Turkey, you were in the room when the Turkish president showed that video what, to President m- Trump. M- more than you, that, what I was, did you make of that? <laughs> yeah,
1: I, well, I was. Uh, 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 the president said it was my deal is how it started because I was the one that was was uh, urging that we we talk with him directly about. Uh, the S-400 missiles. They could have the S-400 missiles if they wanted to, but they couldn't have the F-35s, our F-35s. Uh, America's, Canada's, the, the other allies, uh, NATO's F-35s. The two were not uh, uh, compatible to be working in the same country. As the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, I have to sign off on uh, all uh, weapons that leave the country uh, for another country. And I told him, I am not signing off on the F-35s uh, as long as you have S-400 missiles in, in your country and under your control, um, we there have been five of them uh, that have been made and are sitting in the United States, ready to ship to them. But they're not leaving until the S-400s are gone. And uh, I think uh, when we sat just like this, I told him that's where we were, and uh, and that's not going to change. So he has got to make some he's got to make some tough decisions. And. Uh, Uh, He's a very firm individual, is the kindest thing I can say about it, but uh, he's got to make some decisions.
0: Should Turkey still be a member of NATO?
1: If you're going to be a member of NATO, you ought to act like a member of NATO, and you ought to do the things that are in NATO's and your allies' best interest.
0: Canada and the U.S. both fought alongside the Kurds. They were really the sharp end of the stick in fighting ISIS. And now you have Turkey making these incursions, all kinds of allegations of war crimes and human rights abuses, uh, of Kurdish people on the Syrian side of the border. Has the U.S. abandoned the Kurds?
1: <laughs> well, not really. I, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't put it in that terms. We had a NATO ally on one side and... The, and uh, in Turkey and Kurd allies against ISIS on the other side. And the two of them uh, were going to get into it. And there was no doubt they were going to get into it. And uh, with what had happened uh, with the upheaval in northern Syria, uh, this was going to happen. Uh, a lot of people are trying to blame this on President Trump and saying uh, that he gave the uh, Turks the green light. He, I, I can tell you, Absolutely. He did not give the Turkish uh, uh, government a green light to go into Syria. But he did praise Uh, the president.
0: Pardon? He did praise the president.
1: Well, he does a lot of things.
0: When it comes to Canada-U.S. relations, Cameron Ortis, who is the head of strategic intelligence for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, was arrested and charged with breaching the Official Secrets Act. Uh, Allegedly, according to the RCMP, he tried to sell secrets to foreign entities. If that's true, would it affect the security relationship with the United States and the willingness of the U.S. government to share intelligence with Canada?
1: I'm on the Intelligence Committee. I'm number two on our Intelligence Committee. I can neither confirm nor uh, deny the facts rega- regarding uh, the uh, that particular individual um, or what he had allegedly done. The short answer to your question is uh, absolutely not. Uh, will it cause everybody to uh,
0: redo some things probably we have to wrap up but just as we do with the impeachment hearings and all the involvement and discussion of u.s. foreign policy are you worried that that's affecting america's perception in the world
1: well not really uh, i think most people in the world are confident that uh, donald trump will be president throughout the rest of this term of office uh, it takes a two-thirds vote in the united states senate to impeach him uh, that that will require uh... 20 of the republicans uh, crossing over and joining 47 of the democrats Uh, to impeach him, that simply isn't going to happen.
0: Senator, we truly appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. For months, protesters in Hong Kong have been in the streets, demanding their civil liberties be maintained and respected. But as confrontations between police and protesters have grown increasingly violent, so has global concern about the situation in Hong Kong. I sat down with former chairperson of the Democratic Party of Hong Kong, Emily Lau. She's been at the forefront of the global attention on Hong Kongers demands. Here's that conversation. Emily Lau, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been at the forefront of these protests and many times you've been the face and the voice internationally of the movement. What is it that the protesters in Hong Kong are hoping to achieve today? Well, I think the the protests,
2: the demands have morphed in the last few months. Initially, of course, people were angry with the extradition bill, which seeks to send people to mainland China for trial. And people are very frightened because over there, this complete lawlessness, you will not get a free trial. And I speak with some authority because I'm on the board of directors of the China Human Rights Lawyers Concern Group, And then, of course, we had peaceful marches, and then degenerated into clashes with the police, tear gas and all that. And the government refused to withdraw the bill. Then, people's demands kept increasing. Uh, uh, Investigate the police brutality. Uh, Why do you call the thing a riot? Uh, Can you give these people arrested amnesty? And then, of course, the demands for really democratic elections because we don't have democratically elected government in Hong Kong. So that's what the people are asking for. You're
0: being honoured for what the people of Hong Kong are doing. You're, you're symbolically accepting that honour here at the Fal- Halifax Forum, but it's an opportunity for you to speak to some of the most powerful people in the world. What is your message to them about what's at stake in Hong Kong?
2: Well, I think some of the diplomats I've spoken to either here or in Hong Kong they regard Hong Kong as a barometer of how China would behave because they see the rising China more and more arrogant and uh, you know dismissive of universal values. We don't want a war. Nobody's going to go to war with China over Hong Kong. But to tell China, hey, you better behave. You made a promise to Hong Kong and to the world that you're going to treat Hong Kong in a decent way. Allow them to enjoy the freedoms. So why are you reneging on it? So I think, and China cares, because China cares about face. If China's criticized internationally, they, I don't think they like it. There's but no if nobody says rate. anything,
0: they would think, ah, oh, wow, that's good. Do you think that that, that concern about international perception and, and saving some face limits how far they're willing to go Well,
2: I think the level of international concern and interest is definitely one thing they consider. Just if you look back a few months ago, when finally the Hong Kong government decided to withdraw the extradition bill, and one of the pro-Beijing figures came out and told the media, well, actually, we think there's nothing wrong with the bill. But in the past few days, There were 67 statements issued by foreign governments. 67 statements. They counted to the last one. And they were not bombs, just statements. But to them, it it matters. So I certainly hope that the international community would just keep up expressing concern, urging China to exercise restraint, because there's concern that they would use the People's Liberation Army. To quell the unrest. So far it hasn't happened. And I hope that, you know, the international public opinion will continue to tell China, hey, that's not on. We don't want a tenement square in Hong Kong. So I, I think it is important. Well, the other thing, of course, the most fundamental thing is, is Hong Kong still useful to China? And I'm sure it is. We've got rule of law. We're an international financial center.
0: What is your advice for Canada? Because the Chinese government has has threatened and scolded Canada uh, not to say anything further about Hong Kong. They have two Canadians which they've detained and accused of spying. The Canadian government says that this is completely arbitrary detention. They will tell you behind the scenes they believe that it's retaliation for Canada's arrest of Meng Wanzhou, the CEO uh, CFO. Pardon me, of Huawei and there's concern for their safety and at the same time Huawei wants access to Canada under the 5G network what advice would you give to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau? I hope the Prime Minister will
2: have the courage and the dignity to stand up and speak out and when he does so I hope he has the support of the Canadian people who all want to be upstanding human beings and also have the support of their allies the Americans and others in the international community because there's one thing that China looks down on it's people who are too timid maybe they like it but deep down inside they, they laugh at you so you have to stand up and say hey this is not right you mustn't act like that so I hope the Prime Minister Trudeau would not be intimidated by the Chinese I know the Chinese ambassador here, a new ambassador, said something to warn the Canadians not to work with the Americans to pass legislation to punish uh, guilty officials. Why not? This is your sovereignty. This is your parliament. If you want to enact such legislation, it's up to you. But if you are intimidated, not only China will look down on you, even your own people. Your allies will look down on you because you have no courage. <laughs> so, it, But of course, it takes a lot to act with courage. And you say, what if, what if they hurt our country? Well, of course, there could be consequences. Like everything in life, whether it's for a prime minister or for an individual. Whatever you say or do, there may be consequences. So you have to think it through carefully. And you have the courage to say, yes, I will say this. On behalf of my people and I'm prepared to take the consequences and so will you because you know it's a two-way street I'm going to Toronto next Tuesday to give a talk there and we have informed the Toronto police because some people told me that we could have a nasty scene on campus Ah, well this isn't this cannot be tolerated you have to stand up for what you believe in, not to bully others, but to
0: defend what you believe in. Powerful words. Emily Lau, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We are sitting down with Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan, one of the few ministers who kept his portfolio in the recent cabinet swearing in. You're also from British Columbia, you're a Western Canadian, your government is trying to figure out how to approach a minority situation and how to deal with the alienation in Alberta and in Saskatchewan. What advice have you given the Prime Minister on how to approach that? You know,
3: the, the approach that uh, our government is taking with uh, not only uh, w- with our Cabinet, we, you know, this is about uh, um, addressing Canadians' needs, and that's what exactly what we're going to do. Let's hear those concerns and how we can move forward and making sure that uh, they feel that their voices are also heard and also um, things that they want and need um, that we can deliver on those.
0: There's been a lot of concern here at the Halifax Forum about the influence of China and the direction that that country is going in. Are you considering putting more Canadian military assets into that region?
3: One thing that was very missing, even before we launched the defence policy, is now not even, we put China aside, that our presence in the Asia-Pacific was not consistent. That's something that I heard from our partners. And that we will come up with a plan to be more persistent. That's exactly what we have done. And so now you have seen greater um, exercise uh, that have been conducted, more uh, deployments, and also with Operation Neon, the sanctions monitoring um, uh, against North Korea uh, is something that we're doing. Now, uh, nations in the Asia Pacific can actually rely on us because they know that we are having a persistent presence.
0: So that's a presence that could increase.
3: When I first. Uh, Increased our our, our, um, our presence into the area. It was about looking at um, b- building those relationships, he- managing disasters, making sure that we look at foreign fighters um, in in that region. We have the flexibility to do more, but these are the decisions that we, as a government, will make. Um, so that uh, it, uh, you know, so we can be a reliable uh, uh, partner.
0: NATO spending—it's been a, a tense issue between Canada and the U.S. At times, they'd like us to be spending two percent. We're not spending two percent, despite saying we plan to get there. I've had multiple sources tell me that the Canadian government received an official demarche, which is like a diplomatic reprimand, a letter from the U.S. Embassy saying, you promised you were going to send more, we don't see any evidence that you're spending more. Tell me about that letter and your response to it.
3: Well, first of all, it's not just about this administration, we've had um, previous administrations always talking about uh, burden-sharing, and and and, um, when they talked about the, the, the Wales Pledge, something that uh, we have been supporting. One of the things that we did, uh, our Prime Minister did, and especially when you go back to 2015, was we talked about the importance of multilateralism um, and how we need, to, um, uh, do, we need to do our part, strengthening NATO. In fact, actually the Prime Minister put it in my, my previous mandate letter, um, how to strengthen those ties with NATO. To do this, what he also directed me to do is conduct a full defense policy review and that comprehensive review has but, allowed But that us, review,
0: Minister, was years ago. I mean, we're talking about now and you know, whether or not you're going to meet that 2% no, spending goal. No, but I'm going to go into
3: that. But the thing is, what you need to do is demonstrate. You have to get an idea of where we're at. And if you look at, not just with NATO, our presence, uh, we have to look at the Arctic, our, our presence in, in the Pacific, what we need to look in Canada, allows us to have a very thorough look of what we can do, which included our support to NATO. So now once we have the comprehensive plan, which now allowed us to increase our spending by 70%, allows us to now invest in the right capabilities. Those capabilities are not just um, that we're investing in, high level capabilities that look into the future, are based on what NATO is going to need, what potential future coalitions might need, what we might need to do in the Arctic. But then the final piece to it is extremely, probably the most important piece, is the contributions is have the cash that gives you the capabilities but you need to contribute.
0: But the Americans are very clearly saying in that letter, Mm -hmm. you are not spending 2%. Why are you not spending 2%? You're supposed to be spending 2%. You're supposed to be moving towards it. We don't see you doing that. That's an unusual move for them to send that kind of a letter to you.
3: As I stated, we've been having discussion about burden sharing for, for some time. And what we need to do to get two-year defense investment, 70% increase is a significant amount. So well, where did
0: that money go? Sorry. Because we don't have vastly more people. We haven't bought vastly more no, equipment.
3: Actually, in fact, actually, I'll be, uh, this is where I have to disagree with you. The plan that we put on the defense policy has outlined, the defense investment plan, where we worked with the defense industry, we've actually outlined for the next 10 years of where where we want to go. And we actually have the money for it. Isn't the, that
0: pushing the money forward, though, no, to when no, you're out no, of government?
3: No. I, this is I, we. This is something that need. Uh, we need to be able to um, educate Canadians more on. The plan that we put into place is about having the money for when the procurement comes. You're saying amount, you've
0: increased it 70% of the overall by defense 2026, budget. By, so by 2026,
3: so from 2016-17. By 2026, but not right now. It, we need to make sure you have the right money at the appropriate time. But the investments that we're making in, into our people, the satellites that that we're putting up, we have mm-hmm. enough money enough for the, the, just the five ships. We purchased a sixth as well. The 15 surface combatants are fully accosted. The The fighter uh, procurement project is um, ongoing as well. So these are those things that the significant increase that, that we're making, we need to first making sure that we're able to um, uh, deliver on the plan that we have right now. Things are on track. That allows us to look at the other future investments that we also need to make, which also does not include any type of deployments that we take, that's outside of the, def- uh, the defense policy.
0: Are you concerned about the relationship with the Americans, though, when they are saying that they don't know whether NATO is still viable? The French president is saying that NATO is brain dead, and the Americans are saying, look, people have to step up to the plate, and they, they're, you know, basically shaming you in this letter saying, why aren't you doing more?
3: The, the relationship in Canada and the US, uh, the defense relationship, uh, I think is even stronger now. Because they see a tangible plan that we have um, uh, created, it's working actually um, uh, extremely well. But let's not forget, when it comes to things, even things like procurement, you have to invest in the people to make it happen.
0: Minister Sajjan, thank you so much for your time today.
3: Great, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us from right here in Halifax. For the West Block, I'm Mercedes Stevenson. Have a great week.